0: Hi, I'm Rebecca Lair. And I'm Amy Choi. And we are the Mashup Americans, the podcast about the beautiful people who have all the hyphens, which is a lot of us. Right. A lot of us. And we are beyond excited to be here for another season of Mashups to Know. Yes. These mashups are doing extraordinarily meaningful and transformative work in their chosen field. And we are living in a better world because of them. That's right. This season, we'll hear from a
1: screenwriter, a behavioral economist, a death doula, which has me having all kinds of conversations about my end of life planning. I hope that we're not at either one of our funerals. Somehow we die at the same time. But if we are, I think you might enjoy mine. (laughs) There's going to be a lot of music Mm -hmm. and some intense crying. I think that's an important part of it because I do want to be grieved. Mm -hmm. But um, dancing,
0: music and a lot of Jewish ritual. Okay. Well, I will consult with your family, but if it doesn't feel like there is enough crying, I can hire those like whalers to come. So don't, they'll be, they'll be tears. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this season <laughs> begins with someone you might not know yet, but you are definitely going to be hearing a lot from in the future. Planned Parenthood's new president, Dr. Lena Wen.
2: I would love for us to live in a world where abortion is understood to be part of the full spectrum of reproductive health care. Reproductive health care is health care. Women's health care is health care. And health care is a basic human right. I would love for us to get to that point. I cannot wait to get into it.
0: Hey, everyone. Thank you for listening to and supporting our show. We love you for it. And we would love you even more if you'd leave us a review and make sure you are subscribed. Sign up a friend, too. I promise they'll love it. Applepodcast.com slash mashup or wherever you listen to pods.
1: So, you know, we hear people saying this a lot. Representation matters, which it does. But... Mm-hmm. It also feels like we're almost always talking about representation in entertainment or in pop culture.
0: Yes, like Crazy Rich Asians, representation. Black Panther, representation. And it's true. We're here for it. And so, also, I mean, all,
1: we're here all the way. Like, we're like oh, the first mm-hmm. people the, with, the, with the signs.
0: <laughs> we are so pumped. We are them. <laughs> and we're also the people who want to see representation in the leadership of Everything else that affects our lives, like in our health and in our finances and in our food and Yes, everything, uh, everything. because the same principles
1: apply. When we know that people are bringing their whole selves to their lives, work, they're also taking their community, us, with them. So... An example, several years ago when we talked to Michelle Obama's chief of staff, Tina Chen, shout out, Tina, Tina. shout out, search it for it in the store. She was talking about how she was helping her daughter fill out FAFSA forms, which were extremely complicated. And Tina was able to come into the East Wing and talk about how filling out forms for college loans might need to change. It might need to be
0: adjusted. And then she was able to change things because of that. God bless Tina Chen, because the number of tears that I shed over FAFSA forms. Oh, wow. I mean, I remember that from 1996. Yeah. Great, long
1: year, time for ago. great year for
0: FAFSA. Great year FAFSA. Anyway, we can all hold empathy for the people that don't have similar experiences as us, obviously. That's part of being a decent human. But also, like, our life experiences really matter. I mean, it informs what we bring to the table and what we prioritize and how we problem solve, all the things. Which brings us to... Our guest. Dr. Lena Wen has
1: described her experience in America as a typical immigrant narrative. Quote unquote. And Mm -hmm. by typical, she means, you know, immigrating here from Shanghai at the age of eight, finishing college and going to medical school at the age of 18, becoming a Rhodes Scholar, obtaining two master's degrees, doing a clinical fellowship at Harvard, becoming health commissioner of Baltimore, and now becoming the president and CEO of Planned Parenthood at 36. I mean, by typical, we mean typically
0: dope, right? <laughs> oh, my God. I just needed to take a nap. Listening I know. To her I, you heard that. She's out of so breath. Out of breath, describing her. <laughs> anyway, among the many, many things that are extraordinary about her is how deeply connected to all the communities she's lived in and worked in she is. I mean, she's connected in a way that I think is unique to mashups. And it's not just about her bringing her Chinese heritage to the table.
1: Right. She's the first physician to run Planned Parenthood in more than 50 years. And she is on a mission
0: to depoliticize health care. Mm-hmm. And although she's just getting started at Planned Parenthood, this has been her mission throughout her entire career. When she was still Baltimore's health commissioner, the Trump administration
2: Boo,
0: boo, uh, boo. <laughs> cut funding to their teen pregnancy prevention program, which, by the way, would have cut access to comprehensive reproductive education for twenty thousand kids in Baltimore. That is so many people, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. many young horny people that need to know <laughs> how to not make more young horny people, or and know stay safe how and do everything. at their choice level. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, so like a baller unhappy with this ridiculous policy. She sued the Trump administration and she won. She also instituted an incredible policy giving a blanket prescription to every resident in Baltimore for an emergency narcotic overdose treatment, which has saved almost 3,000 lives. Ah, I love her. What a hero. Total hero. Here is Dr. Lena
2: Wen. I grew up in Shanghai, which is a city of 20-some million people. And my parents immigrated, like many families do, for a better opportunity for me and for for us as a family. Um, my parents both f- faced significant political issues in China. And for them, coming here was an important way of making a new life in a different way than they would have been able to. And we landed in... Logan, Utah. So my mother came Utah. initially on a student visa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so she came on a student visa and she was given two choices. She was given the choice of Chicago, Illinois, which is where she'd gotten into school as well, and Logan, Utah. And her professor at the time, this is way pre Google, pre Yahoo and Alta Vista, whatever. And she asked her professor. Her professor said, oh, Utah, Utah is the place to be. <laughs> oh, and my God. That, that's that how we ended the up there.
1: <laughs> that feels like there's it's so common where anywhere in the world where we, you know, someone has their English book or whatever it is. And it's like somehow 45 years old. And it's just like the references in it are just a little out of date. <laughs> there probably weren't that many Chinese people in Utah, I'm guessing.
2: No, there weren't. I think there was one other Chinese family in the entire town that we got to know. But I will say that the people there were so kind. I mean, I was this strange looking kid who didn't speak English. And when we arrived, we were very poor. I mean, my parents saved up. But by the time we paid for our visa on our plane tickets, we had $40. Mm. And my parents both worked multiple jobs. They probably worked two or three jobs each at all times. I mean, this is the typical immigrant story. And we still really struggle to make ends meet. And that's what that's what we did. I mean, that's the that's the life that we had there. Um, I remember we were so poor that we couldn't afford to pay for heating. And I also didn't have a winter coat. We arrived initially in January, um, or in mm. December rather, and um, and and it was really cold. And I, I just I remember wearing. All these layers of pants to go to school, and all these sweaters, so that once I got to school, I'd have to take off all these layers, and my teachers had to put my all my clothes into a special closet. It's it's I, the image of that is so
0: specific and so heartrending. Did you you know? It's I think it's an interesting. It's often an experience that young mashups have where it's not just like your parents have come for you like as you say to give you more opportunity to 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 build kind of this new life for the next generation and as part of that they're they're doing all of this work to provide for you and then you as the kid are both taking it all in and also now becoming in some ways like a guide and a caregiver for your parents I wonder, did you have that? Like, we we often talk about how we became the cultural translators or or the people that kind of explain to our parents how different things in America worked.
2: That is so interesting. I don't think I quite thought about it this way, but it's, it is really true. I mean, I see this in my medical practice, too, that so often it's the kids. And we're talking about teenagers or even younger kids who are doing the actual translating mm. when their parents are... Getting medical care, or they are translating the culture and the significance of what's going on around them. And actually, for me, I I definitely experienced this, including when my mother became ill. Mm. My mother was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was forty four. She was diagnosed with what turned out to be metastatic breast cancer. Actually, at the time that she had her, she had all of her tests done, and I just remember how big of a disconnect Mm. patients face in our medical system anyway. And then you on top of that, language barriers, cultural barriers. I mean, my mother thought that she couldn't say no to the doctor, that if the doctor recommended anything, the doctor was like her parent, right? It was like this authoritarian Mm. figure that she'd be fired by her doctor for asking questions. Mm. And I, I know that that led to worse care for her and for so many other people, particularly immigrants and people of color. How old were you at that time? I was already in medical school, actually. And so I think, I mean, I might have been, I don't know, 20 or something like that. So this is not an experience of of me and my childhood when all of this happened. But I think as a medical student, I really saw this disconnect for myself because I knew also that the doctors and nurses who saw my mother they did have good intentions too. They weren't trying to treat her poorly. I mean, they weren't, there were just so many instances though that she and I would walk into an exam room or a waiting room and the receptionist or somebody would say, do you speak English? Mm. And my mother who has her PhD in the US and I was a medical student. I mean, it's just something, it's just another level of subconscious bias that Mm. we all face. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm,
1: I'm curious about – I I very much relate to this, and in, in my personal life experiences connected to that. And I found that I always adv- – I'm like, somebody needs to go with – when I find out somebody's sick or a par- friend's parent is sick at this point, I'm like, who's going with them to be their advocate <laughs> so, to, in, in that situation? But I, I wonder how that informed – you're in medical school, and this is happening – what were some of the realizations you had in classes or about the care or about even bedside manner and like how you you might be able to change that, given your
2: personal experience? Well, I learned the hard way why it's so important to be an advocate, to be an advocate for your loved one, to be an advocate for yourself, to be an advocate for our patients. My mother was actually misdiagnosed for over a year before she was finally diagnosed with what turned out to be cancer that had spread to her mm. bones, her brain, and her lungs. And the I look back and my my mother passed away actually nine years ago, and I think about her every day, especially as I'm a mother myself. And my mother loved kids, and I can only imagine how much she would have loved my son. Mm. And I think now to all the instances when she called me and she was in LA and I was in St. Louis for medical school. And I remember her calling me and telling me that there was something wrong. Mm. Something wasn't, something wasn't, she knew she just wasn't feeling right. And I wish that I had pressed her at that time to go to the doctor. I wish that the first time she went to the doctor and was told that she had depression when she had all these medical symptoms Mm these physical symptoms. I wish that I had pressed for a second opinion much sooner. I mean, all these are lessons that I take away. I actually ended up writing a book about patient advocacy and how to bridge this disconnect between what patients need and what doctors are trying to do. And this also very much led me into public health too, because It's also in the ER, I'm I'm an emergency physician, so it's also in the ER that I saw how much of a disconnect there exists. And that disconnect is that we see our patients at one point in time, and we may be doing what, what is best for them in that point in time, but I remember treating this young boy, a patient who came into the ER all the time for asthma, and I would give him an inhaler or breathing treatments and steroids, but he would keep coming back. And it's because he and his mom were homeless. Mm. And what we needed to do was to provide them also with shelter. And we also had to help them with escaping a, a situation of violence in the family. I mean, these are all the other needs that our patients face too. And it's also our obligation as the provider, as the physician, as the community to serve those other health needs too.
1: So, you know, with all your different posts that you've had, so ER physician, Baltimore City Health Commissioner, now president of Planned Parenthood, you have treated such a diverse, such diverse communities, right? Let's say I'm coming into an an ER. What are some questions that we might ask as we look around about like
2: how so that we can help make it better? Well, I think it begins before you arrive, Of course, there are some situations when you arrive in the ER in extremis and in extreme distress, and you'll actually, I think you'll get very good care because that is what we train to do in emergency medicine. The vast majority of the time, though, you'll have time to think about it. You'll have time to to prepare for your doctor's visit or your ER visit. And what I would encourage you to do is first, bring someone with you. When you're feeling ill, even if you're having a cold or the flu, you're just not feeling yourself. And it's helpful to bring somebody else there who can be an advocate for you too. Second thing is write down your questions. Write down not only your questions too, but also all the things that you've experienced, your symptoms, what's going on in your life. Um, the context of your illness is important too. And of course, the medications that, that you're taking and any medical problems and allergies that, that you have. And then the third is when you show up to tell your story. Studies have shown that over 80% of diagnoses can be made just based on your history, mm. which is your story. And you know that the best. You are the expert when it comes to your medical history, when it comes to your body. And we, as the physicians, we need you to tell us what's going on. And so tell us your story. Don't just list your symptoms, but start from the beginning. Talk about what's going on and put it into the context of your life so that we can get a better picture of how what you're coming in with actually is affecting you on a daily basis. So then, then I want to add here to a question that's so extraordinarily
1: helpful, but it's about now you're... So you're a public health expert. I mean, this is what you do. And I wonder then, so let's say a Black woman walks in and is going to tell her story, but, but saddled with the burden of knowing and having experienced so many times when her story has been dismissed. How can we, like, as people who are advocating for other people who maybe can't advocate for themselves in the same way. Like, what can we do to change that? Like, how do we, (laughs) I mean, uh, we were trying to make uh,
0: people listen. Yeah,
1: we're trying to undo, you know, all the systems of racism. (laughs) There's that. But like, what are some ways that we
2: can actually help people? be heard? That is such a good question. And actually what you just mentioned makes me think of our maternal mortality rates, which mm-hmm. are finally getting the attention that they deserve. I mean, it's it's horrific and shameful that the U.S. is the only industrialized country where the rate of women dying in childbirth is actually increasing. It's higher now than it was in 1990 an african american woman is 3 to 4 times more likely to die in pregnancy than a white woman and when we trace it down to and and look at all the other confounding variables here even if you take into account educational level and economic and socioeconomic status even if you even all those things being equal african american women still have a much higher rate of maternal mortality than white women and then you just have to wonder about what is the underlying reason. And there is an underlying reason, and that is the unconscious bias, that is the fact that we have to recognize racism as a public health issue, mm. and our structural racism and systemic inequities as being fundamental to how we got to where, where where we are. And I think that us calling it out and recognizing it is an important part of it, and calling out that we need serious investments in race equity inclusion. We need serious investments in training to undo um, these structures of of racism. Mm -hmm. And then we need systems in place too that would help us to encounter and face our own own biases as well as how how to move forward. How does Planned
0: Parenthood tackle that? The first time I ever got healthcare for myself was as a Junior in college was going to a local Planned Parenthood clinic and I think you know one of the beauties of the organization is that you know you can go in and be undocumented you can go in and you know not have the resources or the language and PP will help and it that doesn't matter But I wonder when we talk about systems, it's like we all swim in these waters of of systemic racism. How, as an organization, have you been tackling
2: that and been able to interrogate that? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that you are a patient of Planned Parenthood. I'm very proud of the fact that one in five women in America have been patients of Planned Parenthood, and that we don't just serve women. We also serve men. We have a commitment to serving all people, LGBTQ people. We are expanding dramatically our care and our programs for for trans people. And we really are proud of of serving everyone, no matter where you come from, what you look like, whether you can pay. I mean, I was a patient of Planned Parenthood myself, and and I just remember when I was 16 years old, coming into one of the clinics in LA where I was living at the time and being so scared. I mean, I just wanted information and, and healthcare, mm-hmm. but there were so many barriers and so much stigma in place to get something as basic as birth control. And I remember coming in and receiving compassionate care. Actually, I, I remember being so scared that I almost walked out of the waiting room. Yeah. And just as I was about to walk out, I had someone come to me, a, a nurse come to me and, and call my, my name. And I actually think that that moment really changed my life because if I had left, I don't know what other choices I might have made, what resources and information I would have had to guide those choices. Mm-hmm. And... I think that the access to reproductive healthcare is fundamental to all people being able to live their dreams. And we face those challenges every day. I mean, our, I, we have over 600 health centers around the country and over 55 affiliates that run our health centers. And I see the challenges that they face. And I also think that The issue of confronting our systemic biases is something that we have to commit ourselves to because otherwise it becomes something that's a checkbox. And so in the national office, we just hired a vice president for diversity, equity, inclusion. We are beginning to have race, equity, inclusion work done throughout our national office and starting to do this with with various affiliates across the country. We are expanding our program for gender affirming care, um, multiple of our health and have significant programs on education, on civil rights, including on voting rights and on on your rights as an immigrant. Um, And I think it's all of those taking into account all of these issues that makes Planned Parenthood who we are, which is that we take into account the whole person and we serve the whole person in the context of where they are in the community to meet the needs of people where they are.
1: Can I ask a a question? Because I think one of the things I hear in getting to hear your personal story, and I know for all of us, is that, like, we are all informed by our life experiences, and it's only that because we're mashups, we're we're told that, like, yeah, it's identity politics and you're playing your identity too much. I'm like, just because that person's a white man doesn't mean that they're neutral uh, by any means. <laughs> but I, I'm thinking about, you know, I wonder if, like, moments... You know, you had your mom's sickness, and then you just talked about having a child and you have an 18 month old. I wonder how, like, that has in the last 18 months or even from pregnancy, so the last two and a half years, have you become, has anything changed or anything opened up to you in kind of understanding, you know, metrescence and becoming a mother? you know, pregnancy that you might have not before as a doctor or as a person been as attuned to?
2: Well, I think about all the patients that I treated or all my little patients who I treated who were brought in for a variety of things. Crying, for example, I used to think, why is a why is a parent bringing a baby into the ER for crying? And <laughs> now I really understand <laughs> but I, I mean yes, I'm, I, I actually I know that being a mom has made me so much of a better doctor because I just relate to what it is that parents go through in a whole different way. And people used to ask me questions because they, they know I'm a doctor and they would say, well, my child is only eating this much or my child only has this many wet diapers a night. Is that normal. I, I really would have no idea. I mean, I could look <laughs> it up in a textbook, but I really had no idea. And now I really do. <laughs> I think that's something that you learn by going through it. I, I think also, though, that, I mean, I, I shared recently just a month ago or so, my personal story with struggling to conceive. Mm. My, my husband and I really wanted kids, but just as we got engaged, I was diagnosed with early cervical cancer. I was 27, and it was caught on a routine pap smear. And I'm really glad that it was caught at the time, but I had to have a procedure that did make it harder for us to have kids. And we tried for years to to have a child, and I feel so lucky that we have our son. Yeah. Um, and I think just about how how important it is for all of us to see reproductive health care as a continuum.
1: Mm-hmm. that
2: the same person that I was when I was a teenager who did not want to get pregnant then at a later time in my life, I did very much want to get pregnant. And that we can't think of people as a decision that they have to make at one point in time. Hmm. We have to think about the whole person and their entire life and what these decisions mean to them at those various distinctive points.
1: As a person who also struggled with fertility stuff, I mean, I think that really resonates with me that there's just so many points in our journey that are uh, that inform us. And it's so Amy and I were talking about this the other day when walking through the world when you're struggling with something and you and you look around, you're like, who knows who else is struggling right now? And, like, that's the empathic way to approach it. And sometimes it's hard for me when so much of the conversation in our world is so unempathic. I'm like, how does that person mm-hmm. walk through the world and, like, they got to that age and they didn't realize that other people are struggling? <laughs> like, what, what was <laughs> happening in their lives that they they didn't, like... Open their eyes, and I'm um, so. Th- we read your story, and I think between your story and you know, like a, a Michelle Obama talking about her journey to making those delicious girls, like it's a really. Those are the kinds of stories we all need to hear to know that we're not alone in this mm-hmm. process.
0: It's so powerful, and I think that something popped into my head when you were talking about your cervix, which is that when I was pregnant. I had had multiple procedures because I had obviously HPV before I got pregnant. And I was told that I had an incompetent cervix. And I was like, that's just a bad name. It's so, for rude. My it's so yes. rude. It's
2: so rude. It's so rude. It's really rude. Right. <laughs> you like, she's just, and when you, yeah. <laughs> just right, fine. And when you're told at 35 that you're a geriatric mother, oh my like, God. what is, what and is that? Is that? Is also How is a that geriatric a thing? Mother?
1: <laughs> I know. And by the way, this geriatric mother feels old AF, as they say.
2: <laughs> I, I, I just wanted to really acknowledge both of you for being willing to be so open. I mean, talking about HPV, talking about cervix, I mean, talking about aspects of our medical care that really are just what they are. They are medical care. And I think for so long, we treat sexual and reproductive health care, and we treat women's health care, and trans care, and gender-affirming care, and all these other things as something different than what they are, which is just health care. Right the more that we can call it out and talk about how for example abortion is a medical procedure that one in four women will have in our lifetimes here in America Let's talk about it as a normal part of our of of our medical practice in the same way that we talk about other aspects of medicine. Let's talk about reproductive health care and see all of this as just being healthcare I think the more we do that, the more we contextualize reproductive health care and abortion and all aspects of healthcare the more we're able to move this conversation beyond all these politicians that are trying to restrict, access to healthcare yeah. in the name of in the name of health when actually it's about misogyny and oppression mm-hmm. i mean
1: amen thank you, thank you so much. much you've been very clear that your tenure as the president of Planned Parenthood will be about the depoliticization of healthcare which is so important but it seems unbelievable in a way because nothing in our country is more political than healthcare right now why Why is that so important to you? Well, it's
2: important to me because this is about my patients' lives. I don't see getting medications for your children as being political, or getting a breast and, and cervical cancer screening, getting an HIV test. That shouldn't be political. My patients shouldn't be cutting their blood pressure pills in half and then having a stroke mm. because they can't afford health insurance. That shouldn't be political. And we know that the vast majority of Americans agree with this. We want more healthcare and not less. I mean, even in this last election, we saw voters in Idaho and Utah and Nebraska vote for Medicaid expansion. This is something that the American people deeply understand. I think the vast majority of Americans would agree that healthcare should be a fundamental human right. The problem is that. That's not where we are as a country. I mean, we spoke about about reproductive health and abortion earlier. I mean, this is something that keeps me awake every single night, the fact that with Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court. Oh, God. That we have a, yeah, right? I mean, but we have a real situation of Roe versus Wade being further eroded or overturned in the next year. And that would leave one in three women of reproductive age, which is 25 million women, Living in states where abortion is criminalized, outlawed, and banned. I mean, that's what happens when we politicize women's health mm. and healthcare. It means that our patients will go without access to care and people will die. And that's why, well, at the same time, that I hope that we can get to the point where getting basic access to care, to health care isn't political. We are not anywhere close to getting there. And in the meantime, we as Planned Parenthood and we as anyone who care about healthcare, we need to be doing everything we can to fight back because it is about people's lives. And it's about the future of our country. It's about what we stand for and whether my son growing up will have the same rights as as anyone else. I mean, it's about if we don't have control over our bodies, if if we... If we're not able to have something as fundamental as that, then none of us can be truly free or equal.
0: Yeah. Amen. Again, this is, this is, you've taken us to church. I think the last question we want to ask you, we open the door to you. I mean, this is, you've just kind of described what, what the mission is for you as, as the president of Planned
2: Parenthood and your tenure there. What do you hope that your legacy will be? I would love for us to live in a world where abortion is understood to be part of the full spectrum of reproductive health care. Reproductive health care is health care, women's health care is health care, and health care is a basic human right. I would love for us to get to that point. And if it's anything that I can do leading this organization that's meant so much to me throughout my life. I mean, this is, I'm really in so many ways living my parents, my mother's wildest dreams for me. As a mother myself and leading this organization, that provided care to me and my mother too. Mm. That's what I want to accomplish. I want to fight for my patients. I want to make sure that just as our doors have been open for 100 years, that our doors will be open for 100 more to care for all people, no matter what, and to never stop fighting for everyone, for their health, their rights, and their futures.
0: I feel very safe with you. Thank you so much, Lena. Thank you, and thank you for your time. Yes, we are fighting the good fight. Safe healthcare for all. Women's healthcare is healthcare. Fuck the patriarchy. Uh, okay, I just added that last
1: one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I completely agree. And uh, <laughs> Lena's recognition of how she is living her mom's dream actually. Made me tear up a bit, obviously. We're crybabies. I also wanted to do some murder hearing about those doctors (laughs) talking to her PhD mom as if she couldn't speak English.
0: Um, Relatable content. Very relatable. Well, thank you all for listening. We have got so much more goodness for you this season. On the next episode, we're going to talk
1: about the ways that real people could actually save money based on our behaviors with Wendy De La Rosa.
2: It's one of these things where every day, ten, eleven bucks doesn't doesn't seem to be like a large amount of money, but over the period of a month, it really makes a meaningful dent. Mm-hmm. We've done qualitative and quantitative research, and we found that one of the things that people regret the most after bank fees is eating out, right? Because but I love we
0: to eat out. I love it. Do I love you, it so Yeah, much. do you regret it at the end of the month? <laughs> uh, well, that would require Only me doing, we're not a doing a doing real we're what I've said. <laughs> right? <laughs> Cannot wait. Our producer is Kara Hart. This show is executive produced by me, Amy Choi, and Rebecca Lair, and the Mashup Americans Creative Studio. Shout out to Shelby Sandlin for handling all of the booking for this show. Our theme music is by DJ Rob Swift with additional music by A Lot Moment. Find us on social at Mashup American. Ciao. Bye.